Hello there. Thank you for making your way to the Kind Mind Podcast. However you may be listening, you're always welcome in this virtual space. My name's Todd, and Happy New Year and Happy New Decade. It's a pleasant coincidence, I suppose, that the last episode of 2019 that I was able to release was about forgiveness and letting go. And now we are well into 2020, and this first episode happens to be about joy. I was recently reading one of my dad's poems called Music of Life, and there's a line that says, Each day is a note, each month is a measure, each year a sheet of music of chords and melodies. So I'd like to add on to that and say that life is a song, and this episode is about making it a joyful song. And this music of life doesn't mean that we're never going to make mistakes or that we don't have our own shortcomings and flaws. It's like the Sufi mystic Hazrat Inayat Khan once said, who was a great Veena player. Life is unmusical when there's no temperament. A person who doesn't get angry once in a while does not live. It is human nature to have all these kinds of minor faults. The joy is in overcoming them. Although it is a new year filled with new opportunity and potential, every day can be a new life for us. Though so many things may look the same, we might be at the same job or with the same people, today need not be just a repetition of yesterday. Let's meet each new day with a new and better attitude and build a succession of melodic notes. So we'll come back to that in a moment, but I'd like to share some upcoming events with you. On the 28th of this month, we have our first Kind Mind Gathering of the Year. It will be at the Hyatt Regency Hotel in Lyle at 7 p.m. Suggested donation is $20 or more. You can find more details about that on the website along with other events, including February 4th at Ace Hotel in Chicago. It will be presented by Mind Curate. It's part of a series of talks, and this one is called The Science of Love, just in time for Valentine's Day. And I'll be joined by my collaborator at Mind Create, Vanessa Palmer. That's at 6 o'clock. Tickets are only $10 and they are available on Eventbrite. I recently announced the upcoming Desert Peace Retreat in New Mexico, outside of Santa Fe, April 9th through 13th. Since time immemorial, pilgrims, mystics, and seekers of wisdom have found peace in the desert and a most suitable sanctuary for self-exploration. So this upcoming retreat at Synergia Ranch outside of Santa Fe will be an opportunity for a very limited number of participants to step away from all the noise and busyness of modern life, to share in some silence, walking in the high desert, and deeper meditation. And we will be studying some sacred writings about peace, and having good conversation. Spaces are filling up quickly, so if you would like to attend or if you would like more information, feel free to reach out to the website or email or through social media, and I can let you know what the steps are to register. There will be more events coming up soon to share with you, but you can keep checking in on the website or on social media at Michael Todd Fink. Also, my recent TED Talk at TEDx Naperville in November has been launched on the TEDx YouTube channel. It's called Beauty is in the Brain of the Beholder. 
And it would mean so much to me if you could watch it and share it with your family and friends. Maybe text about it or post about it or tag people. But whatever you can do to spread the word on that and share this message about true beauty and the Zen of imperfection, impermanence, and incompleteness, whatever you can do to spread that message would mean so much to me. And I would love to know what you think. So on the YouTube video, if you could like it and comment about it, that would be great. And now, this new episode was recorded December 12th of last year at one of our Kind Mind gatherings. And talk about mostly how joy is something inherent, it's deeper than pleasure and happiness, and that it doesn't require any external support, although it is a process to learn that through having pleasurable experiences. It reminds me of a quote that a friend of mine shared from Leo Tolstoy, an author who I have drawn a lot of inspiration from over the years. But that quote is, People usually think that progress consists of the increase in knowledge, in the improvement of life, but that isn't so. Progress consists only in greater clarification of answers to the basic questions of life. The truth is always accessible to a man, because a man's soul is a divine spark, the truth itself. It's only a matter of removing from this divine spark everything that obscures it. Progress consists not in the increase of truth, but of freeing it from its wrappings. The truth is obtained like gold, not by letting it grow bigger, but by washing off from it everything that isn't gold. There is a little story in the legendary life of the Buddha about a student that approaches, saying, I want joy. And the Buddha replies, then remove the eye. The eye represents ego. And what are you left with? Student answers, want joy. Then take away the want, which represents desire. And what's left? Joy. The techniques and steps and insights and other strategies for experiencing this for yourself are kind of laid out and explored in this episode And today, we're all familiar with the acronym FOMO, the fear of missing out. But that is kind of a paradox, because as soon as you're afraid of missing something or not being there, you already lose what's here. And so a better acronym is JOMO, the joy of missing out. Letting go of wanting, of grasping outside of the present moment when you're practicing this type of mindfulness and anchoring and opening up to what is, or as we go deeper into like a flower, blooming wherever you're planted. Talk about four qualities of true love and how that relates to joy. And in that we touch on how it's important to have compassion when your loved ones are struggling or anyone is struggling, but also the importance of rejoicing when people are succeeding. Now they say you really know who your friends are during tough times, but that also applies to good times. When you're living your best life, not everybody is going to be cheering you on. And those that are and celebrate with you, and you can see that there is genuine excitement for you, then you you know that that's a good friend. 
In the earlier days of my spiritual seeking, I was really intrigued by occult powers and mysticism around things like levitation and telekinesis, and I wanted to know what was possible. And when I was living in the the ashram in India, when my teacher asked what motivated us to pursue this training, in my mind I was reflecting on all these miracles that I've read about. And then in demonstration of the very kind of miracles I was curious about, he stated, is there any greater miracle than joy? And that really hit me because I realized you could learn about all these different things, right? And it's fascinating. But if you're not happy, like truly happy, then what good is any of it? What good is power? What good is knowledge? What good is success if we don't get rid of the suffering? And so that led to a fundamental shift in my study and in my practice and in my way of living. Okay, finally, there's an emphasis on sympathetic joy. And I wanted to add that new psychological research identifies that Not sharing positive experiences is one of the primary reasons why our joy does not grow. Discussing positive experiences with supportive friends has a much greater impact on life satisfaction and well-being than simply thinking about it. And here's one final analogy. A flock of geese rotates positions in the V, and they fly farther together because of the boost from the lift of those in front. Similarly, Imagine communities knitted together with threads of sympathetic joy, ready to rejoice and then share so as to keep elevating the whole. So I hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Looking forward to connecting soon, hopefully at one of the upcoming talks or events or perhaps in the desert in New Mexico. Please keep in touch and may your new year and decade be filled with joy. I think it's helpful for me to see joy on a happiness continuum. So I may use some words interchangeably with joy, but if you could think of on one end of the spectrum, you have pleasure. Pleasure is a good feeling, but it's very ephemeral. It lasts about as long as the sensory enjoyment lasts. And so it's very much rooted in sense objects, like a piece of pie or a beautiful sunset. And then as you move across the continuum, you come to something like happiness. I think happiness, although we use it to mean joy sometimes, and I may use it interchangeably with joy, but as you move deeper into this positive feeling of delight, happiness is no longer bound by the length of the sensory experience. Happiness usually is a little bit more sustainable because it has more to do with our circumstances and the meaning that we derive from those circumstances. So to have a healthy relationship, to have 
creative work, to have a sense of purpose and direction can all be reasons, I, I suppose, to be happy. However, I'm still citing reasons. So happiness ordinarily is very much rooted still in the external world. As we go deeper, there's some kind of shift. And I think joy is a good word for a spiritual experience. I think the others much more rooted in physical sensations in the body. But joy is where it starts to become something beyond that because it's an inward happiness that's not so dependent on what's going on externally. We think that something in the environment is giving us joy. But here's how we can understand that that's not actually the case or not completely the case. Let's say we get joy from chocolate. Raise your hand if you like chocolate. So one piece of chocolate ought to give one unit of joy. <laughs> so that's how we'll quantify the utility here. So one, one brick of chocolate, one unit of joy. So two bricks of chocolate, double the joy. Four, quadruple. But at some point, as we keep consuming chocolate, there's the law of diminishing <laughs> marginal utility. It's no longer giving us more joy. And at some point... Not only is our joy not going to keep increasing, it's going to start to decrease. There will come a point where no more chocolate can make you any happier. It can make you unhappy. So then how is it that there could ever be happiness in things? Or people for that matter? Well, my spiritual teacher described it like this. That we have these experiences and they trigger eternal joy or inner joy that's always there it comes up, it comes out temporarily. So a metaphor would be a dog and a bone. Have you ever seen your dog religiously guarding its bone and gnawing on it for hours? That long time of gnawing causes the gums to bleed in the dog. And when the dog is drinking its own blood, it's thinking it got it from the bone. But the blood was never in the bone. The blood was inside of the dog. And so that is the metaphor to describe our inner joy that comes out when it's triggered. In the course of a day, scientists say that we have about three times as many positive experiences compared to negative ones on average. But it doesn't feel that way. And if I asked you to make a list of all the things that could realistically go right today that would make your day fantastic, over the top, Maybe you could come up with a handful of things, talking realistically. But if I asked, what could realistically go wrong that could really ruin your day? It's a much longer list. That is the negativity bias. We have evolved, we've talked about it before, but we have evolved to give more weight to negativity because it had a real evolutionary value for our survival. To count one's blessings, to contemplate the stars, to stop and smell the roses, didn't really keep us safe, didn't keep our ancestors safe, made us more vulnerable to predators. But those who could worry and think of all the things that could go wrong could protect themselves in a very dangerous world. So we have this negativity bias, and this is precisely what limits our joy or stops our joy from expanding. And then there's more complications in the modern era, and that is that 
people don't share each other's joy. When we see good things happening on social media, it doesn't necessarily inspire your joy. It somehow has the potential for some people to diminish their positivity, to diminish their happiness. Why is that? Why do we sometimes feel less instead of more when we witness somebody else's joy? Because of comparison. Craving, competition, yeah. And so because we feel this sometimes in ourselves, where it's like, oh, that's the vacation I've always wanted to take, or that's the job I've always wished I could have, or the meaningful relationship I've dreamed of having. It's hard to just go, yay, you know, sometimes. Good for you. <laughs> Where am I at again? <laughs> you know? But if we could do it, research shows that if you could share, even with one person, good experiences from your day, it lasts longer. The feeling lasts longer. The changes in the brain last longer. The, the changes in our health are more sustainable. And that's the way it was ultimately designed, I think, in the brain was for it to be shared and for us to celebrate it. There is a word for joy called mudita. In yoga, some Buddhist philosophy, mudita means sympathetic joy. Now, we're very familiar with sympathy and empathy being relevant when someone is struggling or suffering. We want to, to some extent, share that feeling to show how much we care and how we're in this together. We're one human family and we send cards and we, we offer our condolences and where we can, we offer our presence to people we care about and anyone really where it makes sense. But then sympathy doesn't apply when people are happy. Somehow it means good for them, but I can't go there with them. So in this particular spiritual technique, sympathetic joy means to actually practice it in the way that you would practice sympathy for someone who's suffering. When somebody is having some positive experience, try to share in that. But you might say, well then, how is that joy as I just described earlier? Joy being this inward experience. Because then isn't it dependent on whatever good things are going on in that person's life? Well, not entirely. The word rejoice has this prefix re, which means again, or return. like. Religion comes from the word religare, which means to reunite. Or reunion means to come together again. So rejoice technically means come back to your own joy. And if we think of it in that way, we would know how to rejoice. You know, we would see something good happening in somebody else and we wouldn't say, I want that. We would say, I have that feeling within me, like the dog and the bone, like the spontaneous joy that comes up with the first piece of chocolate, but not the tenth piece. We could just reconnect to what's already within. And when I think about trying to do this on a regular basis, trying to live this way, I'm reminded of this particular flower, a particular morning glory that is unique because it opens up in the morning at dawn and blossoms only once. And it closes at night and it wilts and fades away forever. It's such an ephemeral phenomenon in nature, but it's also a good reminder of how short life is 
and that we have this responsibility to bloom. And the flower becomes beautiful, but it doesn't have to go anywhere. It doesn't need a whole bunch of stuff. It doesn't travel anywhere. It just does all the magic right where it is. So for joy, we can think of, if I really want to be joyful, I can't be chasing all kinds of things in an effort to acquire something. Because if my joy were out there to be acquired, then I could just lose it again. If we think of the word joy as an acronym, J-O-Y, just open yourself like the flower. Open the mind, open the heart, because something is there. There's some energy that we could tap into that could help us to blossom. In the flower's case, there's light. And as soon as it feels the light, it opens up. There is light, there is energy, there is connectivity around us, but we're closed off to it. And it gets complicated, I think, in modern times for the reasons that we stated, but we're not as connected with each other. We've substituted likes and follows for hugs and conversations, and it's hard to not be lonely in this world. And so there is a sense that the world is getting more closed off from each other. But just open yourself means in this moment, wherever you are, don't close yourself off to what is. And my first experience with this, my first, I would say, feeling of authentic joy, where it's not because something really favorable is happening, was the time when I was in India studying meditation with my teacher. And part of my arrangement there, staying there for several months in this ashram monastery with some monks, was to do some work, do some manual labor at times, or help in different ways. At one particular time, around this time of year actually, we were moving debris. It was bricks from a building that was torn down. And in this part of India, you just get a basket, fill it with bricks, you put it on your head, and you take it to the other place. And I started to feel really miserable doing this for a couple hours. My neck hurt, my shoulders hurt, and it was hot too. Sun is beating down, we're sweating. And I recognized just how unpleasant it was, just how miserable it was. But when I looked around, I saw that there were some people that clearly were not unhappy. Some people were just completely open to what we were doing and singing, whistling, just totally enjoy. So then I said to myself, it can't be this work. It can't be this heat. Something's happening in me that's cutting me off from what they have. And, and then I realized, well, what, what am I doing in my mind? I'm thinking about all the things outside of the here and now. I'm thinking about what I don't have, namely air conditioning. <laughs> there was a lot of other things we didn't have there that I was dreaming about in that moment. I have a wooden cot for a bed there and a mosquito net over me. I started feeling like, I don't, this isn't fun anymore. I want to go back to America. But I had already committed in my mind, I will do this no matter what. I don't quite know what I'm in for, but I know that I don't want to fail at this. It's a six-month time before my visa runs out. I surely can survive that long. But if I die in that six months, I'll be dying trying to meditate. <laughs> so then I said, that's all out. 
I just gave it all up. I think because the situation was so intense, I said, no more. No more wanting to be somewhere else. No more thinking of anything else. Just completely open yourself to the present moment. And then I felt something. And so it wasn't just like an intellectual thing. It started there. But there was something that actually shifted. And it felt like, oh, this fountain kind of opened up. And then I had energy and I had enthusiasm again. And I could work. And it wasn't even work. It was just like when you sleep on your arm at night and you wake up and it's numb. And so then you start to massage it for a little while. And then the circulation returns and you get the feeling back. It was like, oh, I'm finally not numb anymore. My circulation with the universe has been reestablished. Now, I'm not saying it's permanent because just like feeling numb in the hands or in the limbs and then getting it to warm up doesn't necessarily mean you'll never go numb again. But now you know you've diagnosed the problem. So I had this deep experience and it was one of the more profound experiences of my life, but it eventually dissipated. But I understood something and I knew what the obstacle was. It felt now like joy is truly the foundation and we have to remove the obstacles within ourselves to to that joy. Speaking of numbness in the hands, I remember during that time in the winter, I came to my teacher. In India, it's very customary to bow down to elders, wise people, saints, cows. And so when I saw my teacher one evening, I came over to him and I put my hands together, uh, prostrated before him and just slightly made contact with his feet, with my hands. And then sometimes people take their hand and they bless themselves, meaning I touched the feet of a holy person, now I bring that into my life. There's also a thought that the south pole of the teacher, when it connects with the north pole of the student, it's mythology, but that it just reminds the person to reconnect with their own inner divinity. Anyways, when he said, you have cold hands, and I said, cold hands, warm heart. (laughs) He was standing with a couple German students. A few of us had come from Europe and America, but there were a couple German guests, and he spontaneously said something in German, and they start laughing. (laughs) And then one of them, he, he says, you can translate for him. And this lady says, we have a saying in German, and one with cold hands knows nothing about love. <laughs> and then my teacher laughed at me and hugged me. But, <laughs> but it was a special moment where I said what I said, but no, I don't really know what true love is. I'm here to, to learn. But it was just a moment, I think, that really stands out as I was working on making this connection, this opening up this channel of circulation. So imagine this holiday season and throughout the year, when we're practicing rejoicing and being glad, we're thinking of sympathetic joy to the world. And when we see goodness anywhere else, not just goodness, but virtue, in the Yoga Sutras, chapter 2, verse 33, talks about four qualities for true love. And one is compassion. 
if you can be compassionate when the other is suffering, not just your partner or loved one, but when anyone is, then you can maintain that circulation. And then another one is friendship. If you can make friendship with happiness, compassion with suffering, friendship with the happiness, sometimes in relationships when the other person's happy, the other person's not so happy. And then mudita, sympathetic joy in virtue, to see the other person's good quality as your own and to celebrate it. It exists, there it is. And then there's one more, upeka, upeksha, loosely translates to equanimity or indifference. Indifference when, with respect to the other people's shortcomings, so that you don't provoke the weakness in others, you help inspire their goodness. And those are the four qualities of true love. So one of these is murita, sympathetic joy. And just to remind you that that doesn't mean that our joy is coming from that other person or from what they're experiencing. Rejoice is a return to our inner joy. There's a story from a Chinese text known as the Chuangzu. Chuangzu was a sage in the fourth century BC. His book is the second most popular book about the Tao symbol, you know, that yin-yang symbol, next to the Tao Te Ching. This book is filled with stories. He may have authored it, it may be a little bit of mythology, but there's one story in there about joy. It's called the joy of fishes. Chuangzu was a wise philosopher. He had a wife and family, and he had a friend known as Huizu. Zu means master. Sometimes it's pronounced Zhuangzi, but in English we've, we've pronounced it Zhuangzu, or Laozu, the author of the Tao Te Ching. So Zhuangzu and Huizu were intellectual rivals, but they also had a close friendship. But Zhuangzu always got the best of Huizu in these mythological stories. One day they're walking along the Hao River in China. They come to a bridge and they start to walk over the arched bridge. When they come to the crown, the apex, Chuangzu pauses and gazing out into the river, he says, look how joyful the fish are. Huizu senses an opportunity to get an edge intellectually on his friend. He says, wait a minute. How do you know the fish are joyful? You're not a fish. Chuangzu senses the attack and calmly responds, You are not I. How do you know what I know? Huizu <laughs> <laughs> anticipated this retort and it played right into his next move, which he was sure would be checkmate in the debate. He says, you're quite right, Chuangzu. I am not you. But by the same token, you are not a fish. So just as I cannot know what you know, you likewise cannot know what the fish know. He's very good at logic. So that is the end of the argument. Chuangzu, undisturbed, but still 
gazing calmly into the water. Not so fast, my friend. Let's come back to your original question. You did not ask if I knew. You asked how I knew. (laughs) Which means you already knew I knew. (laughs) So now I'll answer your question, my friend. I know just by standing here over the river. And so for thousands of years, people have interpreted this story in different ways. Why does he say, I know just by standing over the river? Some people interpret it as it's his joy. He's rejoicing, and because he's connected with his inner joy, he knows. So there's two kinds of knowledge that is described in Eastern philosophy. There's the external knowledge that Kuizu is quite adept at, logic, scientific method, and so on. But there's also self-knowledge. And when a person knows who the knower is, you somehow have access to other understanding, to deeper understanding of how the universe works. Thomas Merton, he made a, a translation of the Chuangzu. That was one of the ways I got introduced to this ancient text. I like that he was interested in it. It was inspiring to me to see a Western mystic deeply appreciative of other spiritual philosophies. Thomas Merton, though, does a good job saying that it's his joy that makes him know that the fish are happy. I've seen other interpretations that say that the the crown of the arch is important. It's a metaphor. He pauses when he gets to the highest point of the bridge, and looking down on the river is symbolic of the elevated perspective of his realization. And so at any other point of the bridge, he might not have known. Being at the top, he's seen things differently. He's seen from that elevated point of view. And the joy of the fish is his own joy. So he's rejoicing. Where does this happen in the brain? This is an interesting search right now. We've talked in the past about how meditation changes the brain through neuroplasticity and how it helps the prefrontal cortex, and that leads to better executive decision-making and memory and learning ability. But there's another region that tends to have more volume, more gray matter density, when subjects report that they feel more joy. In this particular region here, known as the precuneus region, it's in the right parietal lobe, and it has a special function. It does a few things, but one part of its job is to integrate information for joy. It's active when we are cognitively appraising the meaning of everything we've experienced. What does it mean that I've been through this suffering? What's the point of my hardship, of my loss, in a way that's different than other parts of the brain? This part of the brain is appraising that in a way that adds purpose and deeper understanding. And when a person is engaged in self-knowledge, self-discovery, or self-inquiry, that part of the brain is active. And when the precuneus region is stronger and has more cells, we can more easily filter out what is not useful, what's not useful for staying connected to our inner joy, to our true happiness. 
Yeah, so he's saying, why is it so tough to go within? I think part of it is cultural. I think we're so used to being told who and what we are. I mean, from the very beginning, we're given a name and we're told, you sit there, you do this, come here. You did good, you did bad. And so we think it's a given that I'm a me. You know, I'm the body. I'm, I know who I am. And so then the rest of our life is spent trying to figure everything else out and chasing in the external world. But it's kind of like looking for a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. As long as you're engaged in that pursuit, well, then you don't ever get to behold the rainbow. Now, what needs to shift, I think, with this is not taking it for granted that we know who we are. People just assume that that's already solved. Even really intelligent scientists have just overlooked that. Who is the thinker that's trying to know? Who is the knower that's trying to know things? And so there's a helpful starting point for this. We have three states of consciousness ordinarily that we cycle through. We're awake like this. We fall asleep and go into dreams. That's a different kind of reality, different set of rules and everything. And then there's a third experience of deep sleep. Right? So deep sleep is not like dreams. But when we're in deep sleep, nobody would ever say that that is unpleasant. Maybe dreams are unpleasant and waking life can be unpleasant, but never deep sleep. Nobody wants to leave deep sleep. And also I've noticed working in hospitals for 20 years that when people are suicidal or when they become suicidal through depression or mental illness, their first inclination or suicidal intention would be to go to sleep and not wake up. Before some, some kind of plan to end their life, first they just don't want to come out of deep sleep. And I think that's because we intuitively know that when you strip everything away, we're all good. I think this is also an indication that there's no support for joy or, or peace, that it's the nature, it's the ground of our being. From deep sleep, we have dreams again and then we wake up. So it gets covered up like a canvas that gets painted on by an artist. And then you can't see the canvas and you assume there never was a canvas. And so I think our task when we're involved in the spiritual quest or doing this inward search is to try to figure out, who am I? Who is the person that exists in those three states? And if I'm peaceful, when I'm in deep sleep, what is the cause of that peace or joy or bliss? It's not that my problems got solved. It's that thinking stopped. And so that's what happened to me in that moment of difficulty or frustration in the heat and with the basket of bricks. So we don't have to wait till we're asleep or in deep meditation, I think, to recognize what's pulling us away from ourselves. To that end, there's one book that has stood out to me among all the books I've ever read and I think was pivotal for me in my spiritual growth. It was called Talks with Ramana Maharshi. But it's just a transcription of conversations over the course of multiple decades that was compiled by a student of his. And so I read this book, it's like 500 pages. I read it multiple times. 
His only concern is knowing oneself. And his emphasis is on self-inquiry, not necessarily doing a bunch of other practices, but just trying to figure out who you are. When you realize that you were not who you thought you were, then you can reestablish that circulation I was talking about. I did bring a quote from that book. I'll read it to you. Oh, remember I said there's this happiness continuum. You have pleasure, happiness, joy. Then beyond joy is bliss. Absolute bliss. The word for bliss in Sanskrit is ananda. And in yoga philosophy, they say that the soul or God has three qualities, sat, chit, ananda. Sat means truth or existence, eternal existence. Chit means consciousness, awareness. And ananda means bliss. Bliss is beyond joy. Bliss is the, like the final ground of being. And this word ananda is interesting. Sanskrit words are really fascinating because every letter has up to seven meanings. Mystics like to use it because they could code stories into these words. As far as I understand ananda, A often means negation. Ananda then is negating something, at least in one of the interpretations, or one of the translations. Nanda ordinarily means joy, but there is another meaning. It means a, a special house. I think that that special house is the body. When there's no body sense, no eye sense, then you are back to the real nature, which is bliss. Nanda meaning joy then, and A meaning negation would mean no joy. But the A, the long A, also means from all sides. So joy from all sides is bliss. I like that definition too, because it means it's not ever going to come from one particular place. So here's that quote. Bliss is not something to be got. On the other hand, you are always bliss. This desire is born of the sense of incompleteness. To whom is this sense of incompleteness? Inquire. In deep sleep you were blissful. Now you are not so. What is interposed between that bliss and this non-bliss? It is the ego. Seek its source and find you are bliss. There is nothing new to get. You have, on the other hand, to get rid of ignorance, which makes you think that you are other than bliss. For whom is this ignorance? It's only to the ego. Trace the source of the ego, then the ego is lost and bliss remains over. It is eternal. You are that, here and now. That is the master key for solving all doubts. The doubts arise in the mind. The mind is born of the ego. The ego rises from the self. Search the source of the ego and the self is revealed. That alone remains. And the universe is only expand itself. It is not different from the self. It's called Talks with Ramana. R-A-M-A-N-A. He lived in the late 1800s to middle of the 20th century. At 16 years old, he was thinking about his own death. And so he laid down on the floor in corpse posture, in yoga, and convinced himself he was dead. And when he realized that there's something eternal that could never die, he no longer identified with 
the body and the part that is not eternal. And then he felt his ever-present self. When that became his realization, he no longer wanted to play the role of Ramana, the 16-year-old boy. So he just left, went to a hill or mountain is called Arunachala. It's in southern India. He found a little cave there and sat there. And he would have died except some people noticed him and recognized that this is no ordinary boy. There's some deep realization in his eyes. And so some people started to help take care of him so that he wouldn't die. And people started to come to this cave. Eventually, the word spread to Europe and a writer named Paul Brunton made a journey from Britain to this remote part of India. And when he met with Ramana, he had his own awakening. He went back and he wrote a book called A Search in Secret India. Well, then word spread all over the world and people came from everywhere. But Ramana never left. He just stayed in the cave or just stayed around Arunachala. And the student that eventually came started to transcribe all of the conversations from the people who came. But mostly he just taught in silence. He would answer sometimes, but then he would just say, there's really nothing that I can say that can communicate this, but if we just sit in silence, you may feel it. You had a question. It really is important to have sorrow. Without sorrow, you can't really have the happiness experience or more depth of joy. So we could think of it like a tree. Sorrow is like the roots that go down and joy is like the branches that go up. The deeper the suffering has been, the more capacity for growth. There's a tree in, um, in England, very big tree, I don't know what it's called, but since it's, it rains a lot in that region, the roots don't actually have to go very deep to get what they need. But when a storm comes, it's surprising to see all these massive trees felled quite easily. The ones that survive a strong storm are the ones that grew in a rocky place or on the side of a hill and their roots had to fight really hard to get back down to where the water is. Yeah. You can think of it as beginner's mind. That is a term in Zen philosophy to try to cultivate the attitude that this is the first time you're experiencing something which can help to remove the judging mind. We can only judge because we've seen these things a million times, so we know what we think something should look like. But when you have a beginner's mind, it connects us to that openness. So that, I think, can reconnect us with joy. Just open yourself. Open the mind. Let go of the judgments. Let go of the past. Let go of the future. Open the mind. Open the heart. And then you can reconnect with joy. Yeah. She said, it's interesting that people try to find joy. Isn't it our very being? Isn't it the life force? Yes. And the expression in French, joie de vivre, that translates literally to the joy of living. Right? Now, people throw it around when, like, you know, you're enjoying a baguette with Nutella and <laughs> a bottle of wine. Ah, joie de vivre. But literally, it's saying, to be alive is to be in joy. 
And that is where we get the word joy from that French word joie. And rejoice, spelled the same as joie. Emily Dickinson, American poet, said, find ecstasy in life itself. The mere sense of being alive is joy enough. If you can practice sharing your joy instead of keeping it, we don't want to share the positive experiences because we know when we see the highlight reels, it's like, ugh. And then we don't want to do it, right? So if we can practice sympathetic joy and just rejoice every time someone else is enjoying to say, well, I already have joy, that is my life force, then we won't be so intimidated to just share. I'm not saying do it on social media. You can, but why not just tell people you know, in our community, this good thing happened. And then we already know that we're going to respond by rejoicing. And then it's not just about you, it's about gifting. Albert Schweitzer said, joy is the only thing that multiplies when it's shared. Share it. Anything else? Yes. You bring up a good point. What about people feeling joy in the misery? There is a limitation to sympathetic joy. We don't want to elicit happiness or express happiness when there's like sadistic joy. Some people get pleasure out of doing hurtful things to other people or seemingly pleasure. Instead, at that time, connect with compassion. It would be wiser and healthier to generate that energy when somebody is in joy with something that's actually painful or hurtful. But being in pain or being hurt doesn't mean we can't connect with our inner joy. It's just not the best time to express, oh, there's always joy. You don't want to talk to a homeless person about the benefits of fasting. I was telling somebody recently, <laughs> give food. It's true, fasting has benefits, right? But it's like when people tell people who are alone or are single, you got to love yourself first. <laughs> I think it's kind of like that. That's the opportunity to bond, connect, to hug, and be present with each other. So when somebody is in pain or hurting, we can be compassionate. Try to inspire change through joy. People often resort to anger when there are hurtful things going on in the world and it, it upsets us. But anger, in my experience, has never been as effective as joy. I think we all know that we're searching for happiness. Everybody is searching for happiness, either outwardly or inwardly. So when we are connected somewhere on the spectrum of happiness, that inspires other people, because that's what everybody wants. And it's an invitation for change. Through anger, we gradually absorb the worst of our enemy. And when the anger becomes powerful enough, it eventually leads one to want to hurt the other person. If the anger is strong enough, we will desire punishment for that person. And now we want the very thing that we were trying to eradicate in the other. And so that is the danger of going down that path of bitterness, resentment, and anger. Okay. Please close your eyes. Take a few deep breaths. 
Let your facial muscles relax around the eyes. As you follow your inhalation and exhalation, witness your breath as the most immediate link to your life and the joie de vivre, the joy of living. Breath is the life force, and the life force itself is joy, the ground of being. And bring your awareness to the immediate space around your body, a few inches from the skin. Try to feel the energy of your body, the pulsation, the rhythm of your cells and your circulation, the heat, the warmth radiating off your skin, the electromagnetism, it's all in there. But what do you want the energy of your life to communicate? As you breathe and feel the pulsation of the life force, fill it with joy. Then slowly expand your awareness from the immediate space around your body out to the boundaries of the room. Let your energy, let your joy connect with all the energy in the room. And slowly bring your awareness back to your body. Feel the sensation of sitting in a chair. Notice the contact between your feet and the floor, your back and the back of the chair. And when you feel ready, you can slowly resume your normal breathing. Slowly open your eyes when you're ready and bring your awareness back into the room. Sympathetic joy. Invisible threads of sympathy. You just have to remember it. That's what rejoice means. And we have to share it. <laughs> 